0: This is an ode to the glass noodle. You may be glass only in name, but our love for you is crystal clear in every Bibigo Korean dumpling. Your tantalizing texture tickles the taste buds, and while you are see-through, the world can't help but see you. The glass noodle, one of many obsessively crafted ingredients in every plump and juicy Korean dumpling from Bibigo. Go handcrafted. Go Bibigo. Authentic Korean dumplings now in the freezer aisle. This is Podco Media Networks.
1: On episode 80 of Confessions of a Marketer, we're talking with a high-growth company CMO. Hi, it's Marguerite Edwards. Welcome back to Confessions of a Marketer. Prism HR CMO Scott Horn is here to chat about marketing a high-growth company. We'll have that in just a moment. Soon, Angel Hollis Vaccaro of Deloitte will be in the hot seat to deconstruct the Beyond Marketing Experience Reimagined report that her firm released recently. And in the weeks ahead, we'll have AJ Wilcox on social media, Joe Martin on video, Mitch Duckler on differentiating your brand, and Steve Randazzo on experiences. I want to invite you to have a listen to my other venture, the Innovation Podcast, the iPod with Garnett Harriman. Lots of interesting people and fun stuff happening over there. Head over to theinnovationpodcast.co to tune in.
0: If you've recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit vitalent.org today.
1: Okay, on to Scott Horn. Scott is CMO at Prism HR, a fast-growing company that is moving into new markets. He's new in the role, so I wanted to talk with him to get a couple of perspectives. What it's like running marketing at a fast-growing company, and how he approached his new job and tackled things like interviewing job candidates. He's got a system that was interesting to hear about. The key, as you'll understand when you listen, is to put people before technology. Let's get to it. Well, Scott Horn, thanks for joining me on Confessions of a Marketer.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: So, what's the secret to success for a CMO in a high-growth company?
0: Oh, wow. So, first thing I'd say is got to get the right team in place. I always start with the leadership team, get, which is what I've done here. I've been at Prism HR roughly about four months. First thing was coming in; there was a pretty good team here and in place, but there were some capabilities we just didn't have. You know, for example, we didn't have PR, we didn't have demand gen, we didn't have full-time marketing ops, any of these things. So it starts with what's the org structure, getting the right leadership and team in place and then filling around that. And then from there it's, you know, do we have the right systems and processes? A lot of people think systems are a bad word, prospect, it's not. And then from there it's, okay, do we have the tech stack as the final piece to augment what we're doing? As I tell people, I'm an ex-software developer. The enabling tech can also be deadly if applied in the wrong sequence.
1: So do you need to get people in place first before the tech?
0: Absolutely. I absolutely think so. I think it's a combination of you want to get people, like, for example, my marketing ops leader, she knows marketing ops far better than I do, which is what we want. And you want somebody who's been there, done that, has experience, has the gravitas to do it. And then from there, you start to say, okay, what kind of systems do we have? Which systems are repeatable and happen a lot? Okay, let's look at applying tech. Yeah. You know, I've done this at previous companies where my last company, I walked in the door we were doing a weekly, essentially sales and marketing review with the CEO, the CFO, myself, and the sales leadership, and it was all manual. It was really painful. We were doing PowerPoints, and it took like 10 people to build a PowerPoint, which was based on poor data in Salesforce, which they transposed and added new errors into a PowerPoint. and We'd be spending the entire meeting going, is that data real? We automated the whole thing so that we got to the point where there was no prep. Literally, yeah. we would walk into a meeting, fire up a browser instance, go into Salesforce and look at the dashboard. That's what you want. You want to spend more time taking action on the data and understanding what the data is telling you versus trying to assemble the data set.
1: But, like, the, the worst thing you can do is, say, you're going to go hire a director of marketing ops mm-hmm. or a manager and say, oh, here's the system we're going to use. Oh, right. We've already chosen. Oh, we don't do that, Uh, actually.
0: Well, the good thing is at Prism HR, and I say this with affection is, and people on my team point this out, is that what we're doing is we're going into brand new markets. So the company's had a lot of success, growing 30% year over year for the last five, six years. And we've done really well in the HR outsourcing provider market. Now we're going into new markets. So there's a lot of stuff none of us have figured out yet. So the good news is when a whole bunch of people are coming in together, I tell them all, hey, it's all upside. Right, now, you, right. And I think you're right. I think coming in, telling somebody this is the way we do it, that's the wrong decision. You hire smart people and new people so they bring fresh thinking into the mix. Right. So a lot of the stuff we're figuring out every day. In fact, it's part of the fun of being here is every day, you get to, if you do at least one thing better, that's one less thing you gotta worry about the next day. Yeah, so makes it fun. Yeah, absolutely.
1: So what are the first two or three things you did when you got into your
0: current position? So the first thing I did is, you know, I always try to spend anywhere from two to four weeks just getting to know the current team. What are they working on? What's going on? So I observe a lot. You don't want to really make any fast decisions. In fact, one of the things most people, or I shouldn't say most people, what a lot of people do that I think is a mistake is to come in and say, I know exactly what's going on. There's, you know, I walked in the door and said, there's a set of known unknowns and there's the unknown unknowns I have no idea about and you know obviously the company had a lot of success so when you come in there you go wow there's been a lot of success before you know I arrived so my job as I tell people is to try to help us do more of that so that's the first thing second thing is as part of that assessment you say what do we not have you know and I mentioned several we did not have a large-scale demand generation capability what I mean by demand generation is using digital physical and other methods to attract and create leads that we can monetize. We didn't have a PR capability. We did not have, uh, we had a very talented person who was had a full-time job doing part-time web and part-time marketing ops, which just doesn't cut it for a company our size. So when you look at those things, then you say, okay, great, I need those capabilities in the team, let's go get some talented people. One of the other things I like to do is, um, and I always do this in every company, this is as much of a playbook as I have, is I teach interviewing. I have an interviewing system, I get the team together, say this is how we're gonna interview together, this is the fourth company I've used it at, and it works really well. In fact, we the first month and a half was kind of figuring out what's what, and I've been here four and a half months, so literally in three months we hired out half the leadership team, So, and we filled pretty much all of our open heads. The recruiting people love us. Right, so tell me about that
1: technique. What's the?
0: So, So, yeah, so the thing on interviewing, and I've got a pointer, I've got a summary of it on my LinkedIn page somewhere. So the thing I tell people about interviewing is, there's two things in interviewing. One, it's an experiential skill, meaning if you reflect, you get better. Second thing is, it's a team skill, it's a team sport. So by getting everybody on the same page and saying, okay, number one, Here's what we're going to look for in candidates we want. So, for example, for me, I want high intelligence, and there's ways to gauge. I want people who are results-driven. I want people who are passionate. I want great communicators. I want great collaborators. And then I tell people the two most important things, which pretty much throughout my career have determined (coughs) success or failure. I look for candidates who have an ability slash desire to learn, which you can demonstrate in interviews, as well as self-awareness. As I tell my teams, candidates who lack one of those last two things, self-awareness or ability slash desire to learn, they scare the heck out of me. I can't fix them by the time. you know, And one of the benefits is by the time a 20-something, 30-something, 40-something shows up on our doorstep at Prism HR, their character is formed. They have a great worth ethic or not. They're high integrity or not. We can't fix those things. I can't fix those things. So that's the first thing is what do we want to look at? What makes a good candidate? Second, What's the mechanics of interviewing? Like how do you you know how do you structure your interview? What are good types of questions versus poor types of questions? How do handoffs work? And the big thing I want Do you do
1: group interviews?
0: We don't. And not to say I have participated in them. Typically what we do is we'll do five to six interviews um, sequenced, the hiring manager plus three or four of the interviewers, possibly a client group. So for example, Product marketing, we'd have product management. Internal comms, we'd have HR on there. And then I'll be the last interview as the group leader. And the reason, and by the way, I apply the same philosophy. I like to have my boss interview my directs because one of the things, hiring managers fall in love with candidates. Yeah, Mainly to check it off the list. Exactly. And the other thing about having other people is then if the person's hired, everybody feels supportive towards the candidate, which is a good thing. But, you know, teaching people like how to write a good or poor job description how to ask a good question or a poor question, how to do handoffs. And then I'd say the final thing is I always want my interviewers to say hire or no hire. I don't like, well, I'm on the fence. That's, that's not an exception. If you're on the fence, it's a no hire. I want, you know, we want candidates we're excited about. We want candidates who raise the average in the group. We want candidates we're thrilled to have join us. And I guess one of the things I do as the leader is I tell the team I'd rather have the headcount be open not forever, you know, not years, right. but I'd rather have the headcount be open until you find somebody you're really excited about versus, you know, don't hire for need. Hiring for need never works. Yeah. You're always disappointed.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's fast. I mean, sometimes, you know, the, the feeling is you just want to get a warm body in the Nope, desk never and, works. And that, that is always a recipe for
0: disaster. I completely agree. It, it, it just doesn't work. And, you know, something, the thing is, that if you show a dedication to it. So, for example, I track people, management, and interviewing time on a separate calendar and... In mm-hmm. Gmail, and my team knows that I will, short of a CEO or board commitment or a customer partner press commitment, I will cancel any other meeting to help them do an interview. Mm-hmm. So, and I want my team to do the same. I tell people, in fact, I tell everyone when I hire a new direct report, I'm like, recruiting's the number one thing you got to do. Yeah. And that's that's something I see a lot of people make a mistake is they think okay. I'll get to when I get to it. Well, you never get yourself out of the ditch until you actually right. have good people. Yeah. So. so one of the, I think,
1: the primary challenges mm-hmm. for a CMO is bridging the sales, marketing, yep. product right. divide, right? And how do you, insure, how do you bridge that divide? Yeah. And how do you ensure everyone stays on the same page? Because each <laughs> one of those three functions kind of has a different... Yeah.
0: Right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So I've done all three. So I've, I've managed sales. I was a product manager for a bunch of years. So I'll start with, I'll piece part the the answer. Product management, product marketing actually should be easy if I say the boundaries are understood and respected by both groups. So the way I describe it is product management owns the roadmap. Product management really owns the decisions on what features or scenarios we're investing in. They do that based upon agreement on what's the tar- who are the target customers, what's the competition we're going right. after. Marketing in the form of product marketing has input into that, but at the end of the day, you've got to respect, hey, product management's closest to it. They're going to make the trade-offs. Do we invest in this scenario? Do we fix this bug, et cetera? You know, and people have been around software, you know, for, I'm looking at you, know that, you always have bugs. I mean, it's just, you try to eliminate, it's a human-built thing, so you're tr- always making thoughtful decisions. There's no such thing as bug-free software. I've been working in software 30 years. Product marketing is really about taking the feature work and the investments and in the product work that product management's done and putting that together in a meaningful way, positioning it, messaging it, which are different. Positioning is where you want to place it in the marketplace. Right. Messaging is how you communicate that in a customer-relevant way. It's an interesting distinction,
1: yeah. and I, th- I think it bears a little yeah, yeah. drilling down into. A lot of people conflate positioning yep. with messaging. It's different. Yeah, and kind of elucidate that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tell me
0: So the way I, the way I describe it is, product positioning is really about defining the market, such as you have a market advantage. What I try to, I have a tool I'll talk about in a second that I use to train teams. We're using it here, but I tell people is you can always, always. To find your product positioning uniquely it may be a very small niche you know so if you say we're the best you know we're the best product you can buy in des moines iowa for under ten dollars that may be a small niche right. but you've defined it yeah. messaging is different because messaging is you may have multiple audiences you may be communicating to for example in our case we may be communicating to an hro partner human resource outsource partner yeah. we may be communicating to a small business and in particular different people within a small business so the way we communicate the language we use the feature prioritization or scenario prioritization we emphasize may be different you know if i was talking to a you know 10 person small business owner versus the hr leader for a 250 person company i'm probably using different language they're going to care about different things so messaging you may have multiple messaging frameworks for the same product positioning you know we've defined our product now we've got to message it to this audience, this audience, this audience. That's the role of product marketing. Yeah. The other thing, product marketing, at least the way I tend to leverage them, is I look at product marketing, as I use a tired sports analogy, they are the quarterbacks of launches. And the way I've seen it work really well, and my first job was product marketing. The way it works really well is you have experts in PR, you have experts in web, et cetera. And the role of the product marketers: is to say, I'm gonna launch this thing, yeah. I wanna tap all that expertise, Bring them together as a kind of virtual team. The way I do that is I have a positioning frame. We call it a positioning framework, which it really is positioning and messaging together. We have a positioning framework. That one sheet of paper represents everything we want those audiences, customer audiences to know about the product. And then you know the web person says, okay, I gotta build a web page out of that. The PR person says, "Okay, I got to come up with a launch plan with press and potentially analysts, a press release, etc." You've got your demand gen people. Okay, we're going to do an email that rolls this out. We may do advertising. That's a really good model. So that's that's product management, product marketing. The sales marketing relationship. Well, you and I could do several hours on that. <laughs> I'll give you the shorthand. The shorthand is I always the advice I give marketers is work from the sale back. I think the mistake a lot of marketers, and I used to make this mistake earlier in my career, is they, you know, they do this whole thing. We're going to spend a bunch of money at the top of the funnel, and, you know, something's going to fall out of the bottom, and uh, that's a recipe for having to update your resume to go look for another job. (laughs) You know, as I I tell, you know, the, the, the thing I say is, first of all, you got to look at why are we successfully selling or not selling today, okay? Who are we successfully selling to? What types of accounts? Who are we selling to those accounts? Is it the CFO? Is it the CIO? Is it... What characteristics define... For example, for us, there is a meaningful distinction between, say, an under-25-person employee small business versus a 250-person small right. business. Right. Completely different purchase processes, more complex processes, purchasing process, more people involved, more functions involved. You got to understand that. Yeah. Then your goal becomes, with sales as the market, we want to go get more of the win type. Right. So... From there, you start to back out and say, okay, we've got an ideal customer profile, which is an account. Yeah. We know the personas we're selling to. And then your marketing strategy becomes, okay, let's figure out the universe of accounts, potentially, or at least the characteristics. Let's figure out who we're selling to. Let's understand the buyer's journey. You know, So I'll use an example. If, I'm, if we're selling to 100 plus employee small businesses and we wanna target the HR leader, whether that's a director or VP, we got to figure out, what do they care about? Is it they care about, wow, doing payroll's really painful and expensive? Is it, wow, workers' comp is really expensive and provide better benefits? Is it we need a better employee onboarding? Do we need better performance management for our employees? And then what you do is you kind of distill a content marketing strategy out of that, and then it's really about understanding, OK, if we're going after a VP of HR for 100-plus employee companies, Where do they go for information? Do they go to LinkedIn? Do they go to Facebook? Do they go to websites? Do they go to G2 Crowd? Do they go to Trust Radius? Do they read email? Do they potentially read physical mail? Because they get so much email, maybe we can attract them. Can we do a webinar? Are there industry events where we should go get them? Are there partnerships? That's really, and then you back up from there, and that's what determines your marketing strategy. Now, the other thing I'll say is, it's really critical, like, if you're a marketing leader and you don't talk to your sales leader at least once a week, something's wrong because it requires constant communication. In fact, I just came out of the meeting I was just in, was our weekly revenue pipeline sales marketing stand up with the sales leaders, with the CFO, with me, with our team. So my marketing ops leader is in there, my demand gen leader, my EDR leader is gonna be in there. We had sales leads in there. And we're literally going through, what happened on this deal? Why do we lose this deal? Is this something, do we need a sales tool? Do we need to do something different? We're having discussions around, I happen to have the sales engineers and the BDRs as part of my team. We're saying, wow, when we do a demo, which we always want to do, what's our win rate when we do a demo versus our win rate when we don't do a demo. Right. Yeah. So there's a lot, and you know, this is the fun part of marketing, in my opinion, the fun part of modern. It's one of the reasons I think B2B is a lot of fun yeah. is you've got data coming at you constantly. Every second there's data. You can choose to learn from it or not, and there's a lot of ways to learn and improve. That's why, as I mentioned earlier, the automation is critical because you're spending all the time trying to collect the data, validate the data is actually correct. You don't have any time left to do anything with it. Right. So. Well, that
1: meeting mm-hmm. that you just described yeah. is where the kind of rubber meets the road it on is. that data, right? Because that's right. That's, that's data in practice.
0: Well, and we're looking at actually sales and how we do against bookings because that meeting is prepped to go present to our board of directors. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. It's like that's the meeting where we're on the bookings plan. Like, for example, this month, this quarter is going to be a great month, great quarter, where we're like, okay, what are we going to do for Q3? Which is because we're in our current Q2. Right. So we're already starting to look at what's going on in Q3? What's the pipeline looking like? What do we got to do now to build pipe? I'll give you an example. Right now, I have one BDR, business development rep. Some people call them SDRs. sales. Yeah. Right? We have one. When I walked in the company, my first 30 days, this was a goof. I wasn't as focused on that, but... We don't have enough BDRs. So 60 days in, I was like, okay, we're going to contract with an outsourcing agency. We're also, I just hired, he started yesterday, literally, a BDR leader. And we're going to start building our BDR team because the BDRs are what feed the salespeople. Sure. So that's one of those things where understanding your sales process, having defined sales stages. Even one of the things I'm doing personally is spending a lot of time writing out, okay, here's what we think a marketing qualified lead is what the criteria is here's what we think the lead scoring model is let's get in a room with sales do you agree and it's okay if they don't agree but it's like either disagree or we're going to agree and commit you know either way and you know if they disagree i I stop and i want to hear them i want to listen carefully but that's the kind of stuff because you know in fact when i walked in the company uh, people were talking about we need xmqls marketing qualified leads and i'm like we haven't even agreed what a Mark qualified lead is yet. But I so, know what it is. Well, yeah. Right? yeah so, and, and it's actually funny because yes, if, if I went around the room, you get 10 different opinions from 10 different people. That's why it's important. And you know, it goes back to the marketing sales relationship. Do we together as one team yeah. agree on what each thing is? So, It really comes down to
1: communication.
0: It is. Well, one of the things I tell people, I personally, am, I didn't start out this way, but I became this way. I'm a rhythm person. Mm-hmm. And what I mean is I have a very planful calendar. Yeah. So I do a rhythm with my 101s, with my directs. We have a team meeting rhythm. We're going to kick off. Now my marketing ops leaders is here. We're going to be having a bi-weekly marketing ops review, which um, I describe as, if you will, the sausage-making meeting. Sure. And I invite sales counterparts and CFO, and I just warn them. I'm like, look, if you're looking for the nice presentation, you know, the f- five-course michelin star dinner – that ain't this meeting, um, we're in the back room butchering stuff, yeah. but if you wanna see how we're doing it. But I'm very much a rhythm person because the rhythm with sales leadership, I talk to my sales leaders at least weekly. I have a weekly breakfast with one, I have one who's remote, we talk all the time. You know, We're on Slack, we're on email, we're texting. It, it really is communication and rhythm, it's critical.
1: All right, next time, Scott is back to continue our chat and get into the key ingredients in a smooth-running marketing machine, OKRs, and lots more. So stay with us. This episode of Confessions of a Marketer was written, produced, and edited by yours truly. T. Jordan of A-Class Productions wrote the theme music. Confessions of a Marketer is a trademark of Podco Media Networks, and this episode is copyright 2019. I'm Mark Reed Edwards. See you next time.
0: stay home for the greater good. Secondhand smoke doesn't. It drifts through cracks in walls, air vents, and sink drains, spreading toxic chemicals that can damage lungs. Secondhand vape also puts your lungs at risk, even with the fruity smells. Protect yourself and the people around you from these secondhand dangers. Learn how at tobaccofreeca.com.